You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 1, verses 1 through 5, and it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I thank you again for this church family and what it means to all of us um, and to be able to meet together this morning. Thank you for Andrew uh, bringing him back home safely and for the words that you're going to give him. Um, And just go with us this week. Give us strength and peace. Um, and just endurance to get through whatever it is that we have coming up. In Jesus' name, amen. Up here right now, I've been gone for six weeks. Um, I've lived like this whole other life in South Africa all the way across the world. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's good to be back. I mean, a lot of you know my story. We've been waiting seven years Seven years we've been in this adoption process, and I'm just uh, so glad that Josie is now back home with us from South Africa. She's doing um, really, really well. Thank you for all the prayers and all the support that you guys have given me uh, and the messages that I received over there. We really, we really felt that, and um, so thank you for that. I would also request that you continue praying. Um, Josie is just... Just imagine, right, all the differences that would come from coming into a family when you didn't have one, Um, learning how, I mean, she speaks English, but we speak English differently here, Um, just all the cultural differences that exist. And for her, especially, I think the prayer would be for her to be able to wrap her mind around a permanent family. She really just kind of struggles with that whole just idea of having a permanent family. So she likes us, but she's like, yeah, and then it'll be cool. I'll be here for maybe a year or two, and then I'll move on. I was like, no, Josie, like, like we're gonna, you're stuck with us forever, you know? And, uh, and she just can't, she's like, I, I'm not sure about that, you know? And uh, just be praying that, you know, that God helps her, continues to help her with all the adjustments um, that she's going through and, and that we're um, going through. I have um, a whole catalog of stories that I have collected um, from South Africa and uh, that I'd like to share with you guys um, over the next coming weeks and months and and years, Um, and just things that God has um, taught me about um, adoption through this process, my own adoption to God the Father. Just God is just doing a lot um, in my own heart that, that I hope to be able to share with you over the course of time. But today, I actually want to acknowledge another 
uh, member of our household that is also going through a lot of adjustments. And that's my firstborn son, um, Moses. This is the first time I've put a picture up uh, on, the, on the PowerPoint of him because he's not around to protest. Uh, <laughs> um, he went with us to South Africa, but he had to cut that uh, trip short because he had to come back to be here on time to attend uh, university. So Judah, my second born, uh, I have anywhere between five and seven children. They move around really fast, so I'm not really sure. <clears throat> but my second born, Judah, uh, he and I went to go visit Moses at UC Davis, um, not, this, not yesterday, but the, the Saturday before. And, and one of the things that I realized as I was talking to him there, and, and also in a subsequent phone conversation that we had just this past week was, and, and I kind of knew this, I mean, I, we were preparing for this, um, but it just kind of hit home, just the amount of opposition that he experiences uh, with regard to his Christian faith at UC Davis. Now, he's, he's doing great. Like, he's actually uh, thriving at UC Davis, I would say. He has, he's getting friends. Um, if, you, if you go around UC Davis, it's like, man, every, there's like a lot of little Moseses walking around. If you know Moses' personality, there's, they're all there. <laughs> and um, anyway, so he's getting friends. A lot of them are atheists. He's loving on them. He's, he's sharing Jesus with them. So I, I feel like he's, he's really, really doing uh, well, but I was just thinking about the differences between my experience and his experience when, when uh, I went to university. So I, I started at a public secular university at U of H before I transferred to a, a Christian university to learn more about the Bible, but there, there was some pushback to, to my Christian faith there, but for the most part, my Christian faith was sort of seen as just like irrelevant, right? But that is not the case for Moses. For Moses, in his situation, his faith is not seen as irrelevant. It's seen as evil. It's seen as harmful uh, to others. He, he was telling me that if, if you're a Christian here, you're basically thought of as kind of like this, this monster that people should protect themselves uh, from now, now some of you and I said, like I said, he's doing well, all that. But some of you maybe have have noticed that uh, a, a trend, and maybe you're even concerned about that sort of shift in culture from viewing the Christian faith as sort of like maybe I don't believe it, but but I kind of respect it to being you know not relevant. That's that was my experience during university. That's how most people thought about it. To now being like, no, it's evil and it's and it's and it's harmful. And you might even wonder, okay, will, will the Jesus movement survive this kind of um, opposition? Will, will the, the kingdom of God in Jesus continue on when they're in the face of this? Right? And if so, if it does, how so? Now, this is all going to become relevant um, as we begin a new series in the book of Acts, right? which was written by a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Like later on in the book of Acts, we'll get to these sections where the, whoever the writer of the book of Acts is there, present, and he's recording things that are happening with, with we. He's like, and then we did this, and then we did that. Well, that's because Luke was an eyewitness to some of the things that happened 
that are recorded in the book of Acts. So he's recording uh, these things uh, for us. We have now received them as scripture. But he's writing to some Christians who have these same kinds of questions. So think about, put yourself in the shoes of a first century Christian for a moment, right? Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth. The opposition has killed Jesus, right? And not, you know, they, they didn't quietly put an injection in his arm or something like that. He died on a cross, right? The apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, pretty major leaders of the Christian church, they are either in prison at the time of the writing of, of Acts or they're already killed. Uh, the apostle James has been murdered in Acts chapter 12. Uh, one of the deacons of the church uh, in Jerusalem, he's been stoned to death. Stephen has been stoned to death. So the, the general feeling about Christians during the first century is there's some hostility towards a Christian. And so the same question was present for them as well. Will Jesus's ministry, will his kingdom continue in the face of opposition? Now, part of the message of the book of Acts is to say, yes, Jesus's ministry, his kingdom will continue to grow and expand throughout the entire world, actually through the witness of his people, his persecuted, his spirit-empowered people. So even in the face of opposition, his kingdom is going to continue to advance. You could even say, as you go through the book of Acts, one of the themes that kind of runs through it is, basically, Luke is wanting us to know, there's actually nothing that happens that falls outside of God the Father's sovereign kingdom plan for the nations in Jesus Christ. Now, that message was definitely relevant then, right? But I, I think it's relevant to us, too, right? It has all kinds of implications for Moses. It has all kinds of implications for us as, as we desire, most of us desire to be a godly witness for Jesus, uh, but maybe we're experiencing some pushback. Or maybe we're not experiencing some pushback, but we, we kind of feel like there's this threat of it hanging over us. Because the pushback in America is pretty mild, right? But I, I, I don't want to minimize that. Um, we're still trying to figure out how to be a Christian in an environment where there is, is pushback. So today marks the beginning of our journey through this really powerful book, and we're going to first look at how it is introduced to us in the prologue. The first five verses of the book of Acts is what we're going to look at today. And in those verses, Luke, the author, does a couple of things. He wants us to look back at Jesus's earthly ministry as recorded in the gospel of Luke, but then he also wants us to look forward to Jesus's future ministry through his spirit-empowered church. So let's first think about how he wants us to look back at Jesus' earthly ministry. The book of Acts begins this way in verse 1, chapter 1. There it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So referring to Jesus' ministry. 
until the day when he was taken up. That's a reference to his ascension, to the right hand of God the Father. So when the author mentions the first book, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Gospel of Luke that he also wrote, which he also addressed to Theophilus. Right? Both books are addressed to Theophilus, which is a very common Greek name. It just means like a dear one to God or beloved of God. But then in the book of Luke, though, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he's given a title. There he is referred to as most excellent Theophilus, right? And the significance of that is when you look a little bit later in the book of Acts, Governor Felix, Governor Festus, they both have that same title of most excellent in Acts chapter 24 and Acts chapter 26. So some people say, well, maybe Theophilus is even a high-ranking member of the Roman Empire. And think about the significance of all that. Imagine being a high-ranking member in the Roman Empire that is largely either concerned about Christians or maybe even openly hostile to Christians. They're trying to figure out what to do with Christians. He's in that position, and then he becomes a Christian. So, so maybe he's a high-ranking member of the Roman Empire, but at the very least, with the name like that, he's a Gentile Christian trying to figure out how to be a Christian in what is sometimes a hostile Roman Empire. So what, what the, the author of Luke is wanting us to think about is this connection between the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke, where uh, the, the author records Jesus's ministry up to the time which he ascended in, into heaven. Now, there's a couple of key aspects that the author wants to highlight for us as we look back at Jesus's earthly ministry. One thing he wants us to remember is Jesus's passion, including his cross work, but then also his resurrection appearances. So we see in verse 3, it says, He, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them, referring to the apostles, after his suffering, or you could translate that passion. So that includes the cross. After his suffering by many proofs, like that's how he showed himself to be alive, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he wants us to remember, he wants on the forefront of our minds that, okay, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and then he appeared to many in his resurrection body over the course of these 40 days. So those who saw Jesus resurrected, that's the testimony of eyewitnesses. So those who actually saw that Jesus alive after the crucifixion. He did that over the course of 40 days. And those were people who were still alive during the writing of Acts. Can you imagine that? Like you receive this book and you're like, oh man, I... Would the guy rose from the dead? Is there anybody who can verify this? How long after that happened was this written? It's like, no, no, here are the people. Here are the people you can go talk to. Um, Paul makes much of this like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 5 through 8. Here are all these people that you can go find and talk to about, wait a minute, you saw somebody who was risen from the dead? Yes, we did. And, and here are the events in which that, that happened uh, for us. So he wants, he wants that on the forefront of our minds. But notice also what Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is talking about with them. What's, what's like the, the topic he's bringing up? 
he's still talking about the kingdom of God, just as he did prior to his crucifixion. So think about the significance of that. What that means is, is that God's kingdom plan did not end with the crucifixion. Right? It was advanced, actually, by the crucifixion. And that becomes sort of a pretty big deal in the book of Acts because that differentiates Jesus from other messianic claimants. Right? There were other people other than Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah. There were other people, and it talks about it, actually, I think it's in Acts 5, Gamaliel. Is that right? Am I getting that? I'm looking at Jay. Anyway, we'll get there. But there were other claimants that said, I'm the Messiah, right? And they were killed too. Guess what happened to their movements after they were killed? Like, do you even know about them? Do you know their names? No, we don't know anything. You know, there's some of it's recorded, but it's like, yeah, they just died and that was it, right? Jesus is different because he rose again from the dead. Like every person on the earth, every historian has to reckon with the fact, how is it that Christianity spread to the whole world, right? And, and, and we'll talk about that as, as we go along. You have to have some kind of answer to that. You might not have to have my answer, but you have to reckon with that somehow. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Luke is reminding Theophilus, he's reminding us, right, that even though Jesus isn't physically present with us, that doesn't mean that we face our problems alone, he is alive. He still reigns over us with his love. And even on top of that, he promised them, and he promises us, those of us who are united to Jesus by faith, the Holy Spirit. So that's like mega not alone, right? The Spirit of Christ living inside of you um, is mega not alone. That's another thing that he brings up, that he wants on the forefront of the, of the reader's mind to think about when Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Picking it back up in verse 4, it says, while they were staying with him, while the disciples were staying with Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, who he later identifies in verse 5 as the Holy Spirit. Now this again connects the book of Acts with Luke. Because at the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is telling the disciples this in verse 49 of that chapter. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, referring to Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So both in Luke and in the book of Acts, the main gift of the inaugurated kingdom that Jesus established is Jesus' spirit himself. And that's what gives them the power to go out from Jerusalem. Where do the, how does the messianic blessing go out into the world? From Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, from the city of David, just as the Old Testament anticipated perhaps in a slightly different way than they anticipated, but still coming out from Jerusalem, from Jesus' spirit-empowered witnesses. So there are these things right here in the first five verses of the book of Acts 
of these events regarding Jesus' earthly ministry that he wants you to have in mind. His passion work on the cross, his resurrection appearances, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, his teaching on, on God, uh, uh, the kingdom of God, and this command to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason why he wants those events to be fresh in the minds of the readers is because it is on the basis of Jesus' earthly ministry, what he did, what he taught, that establishes the foundation for how Jesus' kingdom will continue to expand. Right, so think about the book of, of Luke. How does Jesus uh, expand the kingdom on earth in the book of Luke? Well, he proclaims the kingdom of God by the power of the Spirit as he lays his life down for others, which puts him on a cross. That's how God establishes his kingdom on the earth, not in spite of opposition, not in spite of the suffering he endured on the cross, but by means of it. By means of suffering, he establishes his kingdom on the earth. And so think about the implications of that for the first readers of the, of the book of Acts as they're trying to figure out how am I supposed to be a Christian in this hostile environment where there's pushback? Think about the implications for Moses as he tries to figure out how am I supposed to be a Christian in this place where my faith is viewed as evil or for us in our own situation. And I, and I, I wanted to pose this question to you guys for you to be able to sort of like turn over in your head as you think about these things. How, how are you doing with the idea that you might face pushback because of your faith? Maybe you haven't even really experienced it yet, but just, you know, watching TV, whatever it is, stories that you hear, how are you doing with the idea of that feeling? Like, maybe I'm going to experience pushback, and, and how, are you, how are you handling that? And is the way that you're handling it, does it look like, is it patterned after, is it in harmony with Jesus' earthly ministry? Does it look like proclaiming the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit as you lay your life down for others? Or are you kind of employing a different kind of strategy to deal with maybe that, that fear that you have? I, I bring this up um, not so that you can feel guilty or anything like that, but just for the, for the Spirit to speak to you, to your own heart, and for you to think about the situations that you're in. And maybe when you do, maybe the Spirit is saying, yeah, it really doesn't look like Jesus. You say that you are upholding the truth of whatever, right? But it really doesn't look like the way that Jesus did that. And so this is an opportunity for, to repent, to say, God, yeah, I'm realizing now that like, it doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't feel like Jesus. So God, you need to come and do a work. That's the Spirit's job, to make us like Jesus. 
So the first thing that the author of Acts wants us to do is to look back at Jesus' earthly ministry. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to then point us forward to Jesus' future ministry. So going back to verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now I want us to focus on that one word, began. Because what's implied in that, right? Seems like in the Gospel of Luke, we're talking about what Jesus began to do and teach. And what that means for Acts is that Jesus is going to continue to do things and continue to teach things, right? And exactly how does he do that? Well, in the book of Acts, if you just keep reading, you begin to learn that Jesus still does things. He still teaches things through his people, his church. So there's a a close connection between Jesus and his people. Uh, For example, do you remember when Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus? Do you remember the question that he asks Paul? He says, why are you persecuting who? Me. Jesus is not even physically present on the earth at the time, right? Paul is going out to try to find Christians, right? But Jesus confronts him by saying, why are you persecuting me? Because there's a close association between Jesus and his church. And even on top of that, as you make your way through the book of Acts, the main characters, the main representatives, Peter and Paul, what you see in them is that their whole lives, even, even Stephen in his stoning, he, his even his martyrdom is patterned after Jesus, right? But definitely for Peter and Paul, they do all the things that Jesus does. They proclaim the kingdom of God. They cast out demons. They heal the lame. They even raise people from the dead. So I put up here, there is, uh, this is from a book called Salvation Through Judgment by Jim Hamilton, which is a good book. And it shows the parallels between the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Peter, and the ministry of Paul. Because what Acts is, is is Jesus is continuing to do things. His ministry is not over. Like the, the crucifixion wasn't the end of his ministry. We're not just supposed to like wait until Jesus comes back. We are to wait for Jesus to come back, right? But it's not like the kingdom program is on pause, right? And some Christians act like that. Like, oh man, the world is so evil. Let's just find a bunker somewhere, hide in there together, and wait for him to come back. Because things are crazy out there, right? And it's like, well, that's, is that the picture that the book of Acts is painting? It doesn't really look like that, does it? Right? They continue to do the ministry uh, and, and proclaim the message of, of Jesus. And he does it through his church, right? Meaning, meaning us. Now, how exactly does that happen? Well, the book of Acts will tell us that it's uh, as we bear witness, we bear witness to the life-changing power of Jesus' reign over us and our life, right? beginning where we are, in their case, Jerusalem, and then extending out into the world. Jesus said in in a verse that we're going to look at uh, more next week, Lord willing, uh, this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Christ's message and ministry continues, it grows, it expands through his church. And it does so even in the face of opposition. There's this interesting pattern in Acts where the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, it expands and it makes its way out into the world, not in spite of hostility and opposition, but because of it. It is propelled by it, right? You just see it just happen over and over. For example, in Acts chapter 8, the author talks about this great persecution that happens in the city of Jerusalem that began with the stoning of Stephen, right? And so... The, the Christians hadn't really left Jerusalem up till that point. But then they're, they start leaving. So it's probably not even really good reasons, right? Fear, you know? They're leaving, but as they're leaving, they're telling other people about Jesus, right? And then they go to Samaria. And that's how the message of Jesus makes it to Samaria. So we read this in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered from Jerusalem went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So think about Jesus and what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's going to go from, you're going to be my witnesses. He doesn't say, please be my witnesses. He doesn't say, the obedient will be my witnesses. Right? He says, like, this is, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen this way. I'm going to make sure that this happens. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We don't want to go to Samaria. Well, how about this? Then they do. And his kingdom is expanded. It's this pattern that keeps reoccurring. If you go to Acts 13 and on, over and over in, in the life of Paul, right? He is propelled by hostility to go from one Gentile town to the next Gentile town, to the next Gentile town. Although the one really hardcore moment, was it Derby? Where he gets stoned, he, they leave him out for dead. He wipes his pants and he goes back inside the city. Man, that is hardcore. But, but most of the time, hostility comes and then he's like, we're going to go to the next town, then the next town. Then eventually at the end of Acts, he's, he's in Rome, right? And so think about that with reference to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. Verse 8. So there's this pattern of Jesus not working in spite of opposition. He is using opposition to bring about his plan. It's almost like he's spreading out that black velvet, right? So it can contrast the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that diamond, the diamond that it is, right? And he's presenting uh, all, of, all of this. And we're not surprised by that, are we? What was the biggest moment, the biggest advancement in the kingdom of God? The cross, the cross, which Peter said in Acts chapter 2 was in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was not surprised by the cross. Right? It was part of his plan. Now, the wicked people were going like this, right? But that's what God does. It, it magnifies his glory to do things like this. So Jesus' ministry, his message, it continues, it grows, it spreads, even in the face of opposition through his persecuted church. But it does so by the Spirit. 
This is why Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't go on any mission trips. Stay there. If you go out like this, you're going to mess it up. <laughs> right? Stay in Jerusalem for my power to come. And then what you find throughout the book of Acts is that it's those who are filled with the Spirit who speak boldly about Jesus in the face of opposition. So that when you get to Acts chapter 4, for example, and the Jewish leaders, they tell Peter, they tell John, don't you ever speak about Jesus again, right? And what do Peter and John do? They, they gather a meeting of the believers, right? And they pray, right? They don't say like, oh yeah, we'll show you, we're bold. They don't do that. They gather a prayer meeting together and say, basically like, there's no way we can do this, God. You've got to come and bring your power, right? And so we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all, not just the apostles, all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about what that means. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Because the early church recognized we're not going to speak with boldness in the face of persecution. That's scary, right? We, if, this, if that's going to happen, God's power has to come and fill us with the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Acts, Jesus' ministry grounds everything that happens after it. But what we see is that his kingdom continues to advance through the witness of his persecuted and spirit-empowered church. And we need to be reminded of that, that the church can thrive in opposition. In fact, the church has always done better. Always. Throughout church history, it's always done better when there's pushback. Both in the early church and throughout the world today, and it's not that the church flourishes because it commits itself to defending its own rights, fighting for its own rights. That's not the, I mean, the, the early Christians in Acts, they would have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> they have no rights. But that's not how it happened. It happened as they proclaimed Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and laid down their lives for others. And so my prayer for us as a community, because the world needs Jesus. I need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And we're starting a little bit to get some pushback. And that can be scary. So we need to recognize what the early church recognized in Acts chapter 4 and pray that God would meet us where we are at. This is not about guilt trips about what we ought to do. This is about, God, we are not prepared for what you are ushering us into. And so you need to come and fill us with your power. And so I, I wanted to spend just a... a a little bit of time this morning and invite you guys to maybe get into groups of two, maybe three, four, or five and just pray about it. 
as the Lord leads. Tell your fears to God about, man, I don't know if I'm up to being a Christian, period. Or I don't know if I'm up to being a Christian in this world, right? And God's not going to say, well, buck up. That's not what's going to happen. It's us calling up. This is the gospel. We need God. And so I invite you now, just make sure nobody's left out, but just gather with two or three other people and maybe just pray for just a little bit. And I'll close this out when I feel like, like we're done. I'm thankful for your kingdom plan that cannot be thwarted. And Lord, I just pray that knowing that will give us confidence that you would take that truth and plant it deep in our hearts, God. That you would change us from the inside out by your spirit to be like Jesus. Jesus.